0: Very pleased to have as my guest today, Tom Thornton, founder of Hedge Fund Telemetry. Tom, welcome to Forward Guidance.
1: Jack, how are you? Nice to see you.
0: Nice to see you too, Tom. So you're known as an analyst uh, investor who specializes in technical analysis and, and trading patterns, sentiment analysis, that sort, that sort of thing. So I, I really want to just start off uh, with a, with a note you had in, in Hedge Fund Telemetry. You, you note that One of the hallmarks of the last few years has been shallow and short-lived pullbacks, meaning that you basically wanted to buy the dip. Uh, And it's my sense, Tom, that things have changed. Why is that the case?
1: Investors have been rewarded to buy every single dip and they've they've just been so anxious to buy every single dip. So they've been very shallow. And you've had the Fed stimulating the economy with QE and keeping rates at zero and it's never easy for a central bank to raise rates. It's a lot more fun to cut rates. Okay. You want to be a central banker when you're cutting rates. Everybody loves you. You write, they write books about you and you're, you write your memoirs and you sell a million copies, but it's hard when you have to pull away the punch bowl and the liquidity and you have to control inflation. And it's just been game on and earnings have been pretty good. So you have. Been able to see uh, those people work, and there's been huge, huge inflows in the last year. In 2021, as you know, there were so many. The inflows were more than 20 years combined in just one year, and so there was just a lot of capital chasing stuff. And now it's changed because now we have an inflation problem, and the Fed is now backing off of QE and will soon be raising rates.
0: Yeah. And the anticipation of rate hikes is already priced into the Fed funds, futures markets, the Euro dollar markets. And you've seen that uh, the two-year yield, for example, has been bumping up at very high levels. I think one person said that there's one day-over-day change of 25 basis points that was the biggest sell-off since June 2009. To what degree, Tom, do you think that that turmoil has Impacted the equity market. I know you follow stocks very closely. What sort of what sort of uh, volatility are you seeing there?
1: Well, one thing, if you look at the two year yield and the Fed funds rate overlaid, the Fed is clearly behind the curve and should have started raising rates probably last September, and they they overstimulated the markets. Uh, I, I think right now the equity markets are digesting. And the, the, the problem that I see is the average stock in the market is down really significantly. I mean, we're talking maybe 40% down on average. And you have these big mega caps and everybody knows that they have such big weightings and they're safe and they make tons of money and they have great buybacks. And so th- that's been a hiding place. And if those stocks really gave up, then we could see a catch down to those other stocks, the average stock that's down a lot more. So my my big thesis right now is that we caught the low, the first move down, and this has been a wave two type corrective bounce. It'll be a lower wave, um, wave high. And then if we break the recent lows, then I think we're gonna really see Deeper levels, probably a three-handle on the S and P.
0: Mm. So we're recording this on Tuesday, February fifteenth. You think we're in the middle of a corrective bounce? You know, I, stocks are up today. So, but you think long-term that that you're, you're quite bearish. And and Tom, can you just explain for the viewers what why are you, why are you bearish? What, what's your sort of structural view?
1: I feel pretty strong that the S and P and the Nasdaq uh, should continue lower. I Actually. All the U.S. markets should continue lower. Um, and it's partly because of the Fed. You could also have, a, you know, you have noise with the Russia-Ukraine situation. But I think longer term, I think we're going to see lower levels. And in bear markets, if this is a bear market, and can't really call it a bear market until it is, I guess, um, acts like one. Yeah. But you... Let's, let's say go back to 1929. 1929, you had this big crash and then it went down for three years after, actually two and a half. But there were 10, 10% spikes along the way. So those were actionable. So that happened also in 2000 and you had some very, uh, meaningful spikes in 2008, 2009 that the problem is, It's not that easy just to short stocks or to be short with puts or whatever. It's really hard because you get caught out with these face ripper rallies. And so you have to be nimble. And my, I've worked for hedge funds and we were really successful in 2008. We were short a billion dollars of financials and CDX and all the stuff in the, I mean, our office was, you know, a football field away from front point and those guys were in the big short. We weren't, uh, but we were basically short, maybe a little bit more than they were with the same trades and it worked and it was hard. It was really hard. Our financials guys were, you know, very nervous, uh, even being right. It was really hard. And it, it in March and actually it started around February and March, we started covering these financials, and we there was still a little bit more downside, but I remember when they said, you know, let's start buying Bank of America, and it was $4, and we were buying all these, and I was like, wow, this is, you know, really significant, but we also had a lot of DeMarc Buy Countdown 13s on daily, weekly, and monthly timeframes, which was all in sync, so that helped uh, bring some conviction, and If we were wrong i figure we probably had a month to two months of a little pain it could have been a lot but it wasn't so it worked out
0: yeah that's a really important point that even when you're short and you're in a bear market the market is generally moving in your favor but you can have these very violent bear market rallies that can if they can rally your conviction and then you cover your short you miss out on the rest of it Uh, Tom, I, that is definitely true about, um, history and also this current market right now, I have been noticing some stocks, Tom, such as perhaps, I don't know, workhorse or some SPACs where they literally just go down every single day. Uh, what have you been following those sorts of companies?
1: You know, I follow them, but they're, they're not really my, in my universe of what I, what I do. Um, you know, the problem with a lot of those, it's hard to short them because the borrow is expensive. Uh, the option volatility is is really high. And it's, you know, for me, it's just more fun to just watch what happens with a lot of these stocks. It's, it's hard to short the obvious. And that, to me, is something that people do way, way too often. And I, I think that you know, you have to, I like to look for perfect setup for me. I like to look for stocks that uh, have had a nice run higher. They get a DeMarc exhaustion signal on the highs. Uh, There's a lot of call buying and the short interest has dropped. So you've had a big squeeze, you've got an exhaustion, and then you can see uh, most of the time um, a pullback. And that is really important. A lot of people will buy puts on the lows and buy calls on the highs. And I can show it every single day of of what people do wrong. And that to me is sort of my secret sauce. I, I do it on the opposite side too. When I have downside exhaustion signals, I see put buying or heavy call uh, or heavy shorting, uh, I can say, okay, I think this one has potential to to move up, and and there are some of those out there. Uh, we were looking at Square and PayPal the other day; those are just those have been mauled and rightfully so because I think their earnings have weakened. They got a little too deep into crypto, and that didn't really pay off uh, to be very sustainable for them. There's market sentiment is starting to turn as well. And I have, I use uh, the daily sentiment index. Um, I've used it for years. We have it charts on our site and it held above 50%. So the majority of people uh, surveyed were bullish and now it's been below 50%. So the majority of people are bearish. and that's a real change of market sentiment and market sentiment is not something that and this is something people get wrong it's not a trigger so if it gets low doesn't mean you got to buy or if it gets real high doesn't mean you got to buy or sell the the bottom line is market sentiment is a condition and it can stay overbought or oversold for a period of time and if we're going into a bear market and certainly the fed tightening most likely very aggressively, uh, I, I think, you know, it's going to be a, a longer period than people hope and the, the implications of when the fed tightens, it's going to hurt profit margins. It's going to hurt, um, really operating for, uh, costs for a lot of companies that, that use leverage, and there are a lot of them out there that are zombie companies that just are re- refining their debt over and over. And if the cost of that refi goes up, which it will, they're going to have some problems.
0: Mm. Tom, right now I'm looking at the uh, S&P index sentiment, and below 50 indicates bearish sentiment, above 50 indicates bullish. So what does, does the fact that there's bearish sentiment in the market now, uh does that is that bearish to you because sometimes the market can get so bearish that actually you you want to buy right like in in april of 2020
1: yeah And in, in march uh, march 23rd 2020 the bullish sentiment got to i think 3% bulls <laughs> and usually when you get under 10% or above 90% uh those are extreme readings and Generally, you're not going to see those readings last at those extremes for long. The thing is, I, I use DeMarc indicators, which is an exhaustion indicator, and they basically work as a trigger for me. So in March of 2020, we had tons of DeMarc exhaustion sequential 13 buy countdowns. And I put out notes saying <clears throat> to everybody, just buy every single thing you can. I covered all my shorts uh, and went mega long, and people thought like I was losing my mind. But as it turned out, those indicators worked, and they've worked well at extreme at extremes.
0: Mm. But you're saying that the uh, bullish the bullish percentage is not at three percent; it's at something like thirty or forty. So it's not bearish enough when you want to get bullish.
1: It's not there yet. And um, it's, you know, we've had this bounce. And one of the things that happened, I think the S&P bullish sentiment got up just under 20% um, at the lows. And then, which is not super oversold, but it, it bounced and it moved up to just under 50%. And then it failed at that level. I also use moving averages on the market sentiment. And those tend to work pretty well too, to just Establish a trend, and the trend right now with that the 20-day moving average of the S&P bullish sentiment is pointed down.
0: And Tom, where are you seeing the biggest pockets of potential weakness? You know, if you look on a historical basis, it's been the Nasdaq, the tech-dominated stocks that have led the way down. Perhaps some people could say they have a higher duration; they're more growth-oriented. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I believe energy is one of the few sectors to be up year to date. Although it is actually down quite a, a bit today. In term, in terms of you know which index or or which sector or or size or growth versus value, what what do you like and wh- what are you seeing the biggest pockets of uh, of risk?
1: Well, I think there's risk, um, pretty evenly spread out, and I can look at the you know, the, the NASDAQ, I know a lot of people will, I've watched a lot of people try and short the triple Qs and the NASDAQ futures, but that's, you're shorting Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, and good, you know, good luck. It's real tough, but it's not impossible. And I do think that there's risk with those companies uh, to, you know, go a little lower. And it's the the thing is, when you have a market correction, at the start of a market correction, the, the stuff that gets thrown overboard first is the junkier type stuff. And that's what we saw. We saw a lot of junky stuff get thrown over. All the meme stocks are gone. The SPACs are decimated. Uh, a lot of tech names that just didn't have any earnings. You know, I'm not bagging on Kathy Wood, but a lot of her stuff got thrown overboard. And then what happens is people hide out in the safe stuff, and then earnings start to get a little trickier, comps get harder, and then they have to let go of those. I think Facebook's a pretty good example. Nobody really expected Facebook to drop 20 to 30% after their earnings, but they did. And that was basically catching people out on that were set up real long, hiding in Facebook. Oh, it's cheap, blah, blah, blah. But that's what happens when there's surprises, the stocks go down a whole lot more. And one other thing that we track a lot and have been tracking a lot more recently is the market short interest and excessive call buying or excessive put buying. And there there were calls being bought on Facebook ahead of the earnings. And usually you want to fade those types of signals. And... At the lows, you see a lot of put buying and then you see this bounce and that's basically a put squeeze That those puts are getting unwound. So people get, if you get surprised, you're going to get an outsized reaction. These uh, big hedge funds and institutional firms were selling at the highest rate ever technology stocks and they were degrossing their books uh, by getting rid of a lot of, a lot of tech stuff. Now tech is actually on the bank of America fund managers survey today, tech uh, tech is at one of the lowest levels as far as exposure. And tech was always a very crowded place. So it's, you know, if when the market does finally find some footing and can bounce tech's going to, there's a lot of tech that's going to bounce real hard. And I I think it's going to catch people that are comfortably short um that have been short these names are gonna get caught out. Look at the way the banks, banks report first and when they reported uh, it wasn't a very good reaction uh, by the market and that's partly, the earnings weren't necessarily awful but the, the reaction was awful. And that I think is generally because fund managers are loaded up to the, their gills with uh, bank stocks and so there was just nobody left to buy them they're not that short, um, and that's why you know if they get crowded. And we try to track that. Um, it's hard to it's hard to move them. I mean, they were the tech names were were crowded and also sold off pretty hard. And you saw outsized reactions in in names like DocuSign, Adobe, Autodesk, um, others that that really you know hit it hard. I mean, and Facebook obviously.
0: Uh, Tom, one thing that struck out to me on your uh, on the, the not your report, uh, the Bank of America survey, which you you read about on Hedge Fund Telemetry, is the amount of investors that were sort of caught off sides by the rate hikes. Um, I could got looking at a chart now that shows that in January, uh, most investors over fifty percent, I think, expected three rate hikes in twenty twenty. Uh, in the February report, they now uh, most of them expect four, and only some of them expect five. But the market, in terms of the Fed funds futures, is pricing in six or seven. So, how do you sort of explain that disconnect? Which, which is are equity investors un, uh, thinking that the Fed is not hawkish enough, or are the futures Fed fund futures market thinking that the Fed is too hawkish?
1: You know, the the funny thing is everybody's panicked, and the, there was also data in there showing that their biggest concern was too tight of monetary policy. Now we're still doing QE as we speak, and we haven't seen the Fed hike once yet, and they're concerned about it. And I always laugh when I hear someone on financial TV saying, "Oh, policy mistake." They're worried about a policy mistake at zero rates with QE. At the markets, not that far off of all-time highs with valuations that are, you know, historically very high. Uh, boy, I'm really Mr positive here today aren't I but um, the bottom line is that, that they will they will most likely hike in my opinion three to four times and I think that um, the big concern in the market is if they hike in March 50 basis points and today's PPI number was red hot it was red hot like the last CPI report and that I think we're going to see another really strong CPI and PPI right before the fed. So the, the 50 basis point consensus will become consensus of what the fed's going to do. And they're behind the curve. They know it. And they have a mandate. I mean, Biden said in his prep big press conference, he did, um, last month that inflation was top of his list. And he passed the buck to Jerome Powell and said, you guys deal with it. It's on you. And I joked last week saying that uh, when Powell was renominated, Biden gave him a little wink and said, you know, get inflation under control before the midterms. (laughs) And um, But I don't think they're going to get inflation completely under control, it's hard to put the genie back in the bottle once it's out. And getting inflation under control, it actually hurts the economy and it, and the stock market. And part of the uh, getting inflation under control is to work the stock market lower. So I don't think the Fed's really that concerned about where the stock market goes. Probably... In you know, in the three thousands, the the Fed might start commenting about it. Uh, I'm not sure they can start QE again or cut rates or will have to. But the Fed's going to be tightening rates for a while. That's my my view.
0: And Tom, how are you thinking about I guess the the sort of distribution? In other words, do you, do you think that it's uh, all, all the risk is sort of spread out linearly, or do you think that once it breaks below 4,000, then it could get to 3,200. And, you know, in which case, perhaps buying deep out of the money put options, if, if that is the case, which I don't know if you even think that, like then buying deep out of the money put options would be a better way to express that view than sort of outright, outright shorting. You know, I, I know there, there are folks like Mike Green who talk about, uh, you know, when, when passive flows unwind, the downside is just way lower than even the most bearish people in the world can think of
1: yeah i've i've had some conversations with mike green and uh yeah it's a sobering thought the the concern i have is that all those people that uh, put money into the market last year are going to be future sellers and nothing motivates sellers more than lower prices and that could you know be a, a cascading type effect now I have put spreads in the market. I'm short stuff in the market. Uh, I'm long stuff in the market. And I, I think that you need to remain rather nimble with, you know, where you are with your put spreads. I don't go out. I generally what I will do is I, I will look for something a month to two months out. I'll look, uh, 2% down, uh, for the first strike and then 10% lower. For the second strike, um, capping my gains if we get there, and those put spreads I did in March of or February of uh, 2020, they went right through the lower strike of the put spread, and you know I could have made a lot more, but you know they worked. They worked as advertised.
0: Yeah, Tom. Uh, one thing that. You know your your Demark indicators are really good at catching is is oil. Talk to us about oil because oil is something that it's very very overbought based on sentiment based on relative uh, strength in uh, this index, but it's sort of remained overbought for many weeks now. And I'm just looking at a chart. You uh so you got you got out of oil very recently, which is a very well timed move. Uh, w- tell us why why you did that and how are you, What's your what's your perspective on, on oil right now?
1: Well, first of all, I I went back, um, I started to get really bullish on crude and energy um, a month before Biden was elected. And the reason, I think I was even talking to you uh, way back when about it, because I knew that their agenda was to hurt the energy companies, whether the shale companies or the big uh, drillers that they would limit the amount of uh, drilling in the U S that would put pressure on the price because supply and demand. And the funny part is that when Trump was elected, I heard all these people saying, Oh, it's all Trump's buddies at Exxon and they're going to get rich. And it was a bear market for the energy markets because there was more supply. So right now we have, A couple problems with supply chains. Uh, The reopening is causing a a big amount of demand. Uh, We're reliant on the Mideast, Russia, foreign, uh, the OPEC plus uh, nations, which is not a good place to be. And Biden really doesn't have a very good plan to control it. Now, market sentiment on crude hit 92%. For the last, uh, two days. And yesterday we had some Demarc, uh, sequential countdown 13s on the daily charts on not only, uh, WTI, but we had it on Brent. We had it on the gasoline futures and I took, I just took off my energy ETFs, uh, the trades that I had on as longs. And I was a, you know, perfect timing, yeah. but. You know, every once in a while, I'll get one. Yeah,
0: and so, um, can you explain DeMarc, I'm going to say quickly, of course it's hard because it's so complicated, but essentially nine in one direction and then days 10, 11, 12, and 13 in another, right?
1: Yeah, there's two components of the DeMarc uh, sequential countdown, and the first one is the setup, and those are the green numbers. Uh, If you look at my charts that I post on Twitter, you'll see them all the time. Uh, The first... uh, the setup countdown or the setup count uh has to be uh nine consecutive closes higher or lower so let's just say higher than uh four previous bars and uh, or the bar four back and then the sequential if the nine completes and like let's say that sequence of nine bars um, does not complete and it interrupts the that uh is canceled so you don't see the green count anymore but if you do get the nine, and that happens all the time, the sequential will continue the trend. And those are the red counts and the parameters are uh, two, you get a new number uh, if you make a two day high over over the high of two days previous. And it can interrupt actually. So if, if it goes up and it can go sideways, but when it has that parameter met, then you get another countdown uh, number when you get to thirteen, that is the big number uh, for an exhaustion, and then give or take, let's say ten to twelve days or bars, depending on time frame, uh, you should see a price reaction in, on the other the other side. If it doesn't happen, which happens to, and it tells you something very important, is that the trend is very very strong and it can continue. Now, the S and P last year had lots of daily thirteens and you had little 3%, 4% pullbacks that were bought.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. An example, I guess is like, uh, I'm guessing that some cruise lines, uh, in March of 2020, they hit a DeMarc bottom, but they did not bottom because <laughs> there was, it was this very strong trend. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so oil has hit a, a DeMarc high and today is sort of its first leg down. Is it going to be a first leg down in a much longer pattern? Obviously, you know, very hard to tell. Or is it once a DeMarc pattern breaks, can it can it return to its longer form trend? Well, I I
1: also look at I, my time frames that I look at. I, I look at some shorter term 60-minute charts for tactical trading. And then I look at daily and then weekly for a more intermediate term. And the weekly still has an upside sequential countdown in play. So therefore the daily could just pause things for a few days. And look, I think you also have, you know, the the Russia, Ukraine uh, negative catalyst that that could cause another spike in in crude. I'm not shorting crude. I'm not shorting energy stocks just because this catalyst is fluid. I don't know what's going to happen. And hopefully we don't have any you know, war or anything like that, but uh, it, there is that risk, and I'd rather short something when I don't have that type of headline risk.
0: Mm. And Tom, we have sort of you said the the lowest quality, but the the most speculative, most risky companies have having gone down first. The SPACs, the ARC, the you know maybe the Russell Growth Index. A lot of companies in that index. Uh, what's next? You know, I figure it's not Apple, right? Apple is the last domino to fall. What is the next domino?
1: The one thing that I will say that um, has been interesting on this bounce is that uh, the sh- the most shorted baskets, well, actually month to date, actually rolling month, it's down two point six percent. So shorts have actually won. And then if you go year over year, uh, the most short basket is it's down twenty seven point seven five percent. So there's been a really good market for the two-sided long and short market. And, you know, you have the Russell growth in there as well. They're down 25% year over year. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of concentration in the shorts with the smaller cap names. And there's a lot of hairy stories on a lot of those names, but the shorts have made money. Now the problem, or well, one of the things I'm starting to see now, and it could be this like, um, the plates are moving, you know, the tectonic plates are starting to move for liquidity, uh, they're starting to short larger cap names. You know, some of the mega cap names are starting to see more shorts. And it's not enough as a percentage of their float to really make a big difference, but it's a percentage, dollar percentage, that's starting to increase. And it's not that shorts can be wrong. Shorts can be right for a period of time, but they're starting to look at liquidity right now. And that to me says that, hey, maybe Apple uh, can go lower. I'm short Apple, I'm short Amazon. Um, I'm profitable on those currently. And those are crowded names with very few shorts. And if you told somebody you wanted to short Apple or Amazon, you, it, they would look at you like, how could you do that? You know, they're such great companies, but they're crowded. There's been exhaustion signals and there are not a lot of shorts there. I'm not looking for these to go down uh, 30%. I'm looking for a 10% drop. I'll take I'll take my profits and, and move on. And also
0: maybe if it goes up 3%, you'll get stopped out. So it's important for people watching this to know that, that you know, y- and it's also a, a you know a fraction of your entire portfolio some of which perhaps most of which is long are you are you net short or, or net longer i'm
1: i'm net sh- i'm net short right net now net short and is that that's fair uh,
0: for you right you're mostly net long
1: no I'm, I'm i'm generally net short i worked for i mean our firm our hedge fund was a 5 billion dollar hedge fund and for the 11 years that we were in business we were basically net short a lot and we were just good at finding shorts in up markets, and when the market did go down, we were positive barely uh, for the year in 2008. So that was a, you know, it worked. I mean, we were in a defensive uh, type of hedge fund. I mean, there are those out there that are mostly long levered hedge funds, and when the you know the tide goes out, they're exposed and they get they get hit down pretty hard.
0: And, and what about uh, Apple and Amazon? makes it a good short well they're
1: crowded uh they just reported earnings i mean apple's earnings were really good i shorted it on the lift and they're again they're crowded and amazon's earnings were were good but they guided down grotesquely uh low the previous quarter so they hit their lowered guidance numbers and look they're they're a great company, but they make all their money with AWS and all the packages. You know, we're getting toothpaste sent to our house with a box and it doesn't make them any money. Uh, but one thing I am long, I'm long the cannabis sector. And I'm not a partake, uh, I don't partake in the cannabis uh, rituals, but I will say that I'm looking at, I like to find catalysts and themes. And so I started buying the catalyst or the uh, cannabis stocks down about fifty part 55% off their highs. And this started in November and I added some recently at the lows. And so I'm down a little on some of those, but not much. And there's catalysts that I like. Uh, one is there's gonna be regulation uh, coming as a, shockingly enough, sit down everybody, bipartisan, the Republicans and Democrats actually agree on legislating uh cannabis uh, federally. And one of the things they have to do is create a banking act so cannabis companies can uh transact business like like a liquor store or any other you know business. Uh and that's been a big hurdle. And that's once that goes through and that's on Biden's agenda that's a schumer agenda and some of the big states like new york connecticut new jersey around here have passed uh, cannabis um uh, legality so they have to get this done and so that soon so they these companies can set up their operations and massachusetts i just heard this uh, had more revenue from cannabis sales than alcohol sales wow so i think that when you look at these uh, governors and they they're, they're going to put pressure on the federal government to legalize the, or create the safe banking act and that is a catalyst i think we'll see upside of maybe 50% with these names and i i'm I don't like to say 50% but they're down about So a 50% move only gets them halfway back to where they were. Right. I mean, maybe they'll go more, but I think it's a huge opportunity. I'm very patient with them. One thing also, I am very uh, much disciplined in the sense that I size my positions appropriately. Now, I'm not a maximalist and I don't put all my money in one particular thing. That is a difficult. Thing. It could be a great thing, but it also, you have you run the risk of blowing yourself up. And a lot of people have um, put themselves in risky things and specula- the most speculative garbage things, hoping to get rich. I have a 5% max limit on a position size, and I have a 15% uh, sector position weight, um, so I can't go too far over... Um, to one side. As far as being long and short, I can be 100% short. I can be 100% long. I generally am not accepted extremes. In March of 2020 I was I was very, very long. Um, so that's that's how I operate and I'm more into the make money reasonably rather than I just don't need to take too much risk. One of the things that came into the market over the last few years was we had a lot of new investors. Uh, it was a get rich quick scheme. And what's the next thing Dave Portnoy was going to recommend? And people chased uh, stocks and cryptos that were going straight up. And when the bubble popped on all those, they all went down uh, basically about the same amount. So my view is there, I'll, I'll be more than happy to find something that's beat down with a positive catalyst um, ahead that I, I see happening um, in, in the next, you know, next couple months.
0: Mm, right. And is there something about um, ARKK or those really beat down stuff that you think they could be oversold? Well, being
1: oversold is there's the good and the bad with being oversold, um, just like there's the good and bad of being overbought. Things can get more oversold and things can get more overbought. And when you see something that is over let's start at the overbought side. When you see things that are overbought, it generally lower or lures, it's like short bait. Okay. It's just like you're throwing chum in the water for shorts to nibble on. And so they'll they'll short real high. And I like to find exhaustion signals, I like to find low short interest, and I like to see those after those moves. And then maybe a little turned down, but that's, it's like, if it's obvious, it's obviously wrong. And that's what happened with a lot of stocks like Tesla that that just were gamma squeezed higher and the shorts, you know, gave up and moved on. And, but on the other side, on the downside, the problem is you have these down moves and the first ones get, you know, the buy the dip people in there, and then it goes up a little small, you know, nominal, and then it fails again, and that you lose that support. And each time that happens, you're going to get fewer investors or traders coming back to that name. And people generally buy after moves happen, and they generally sell at the lows of way too, you know, at at the wrong time. So that, that to me is uh, the risk. And the thing is on my call about the S and P and the NASDAQ and generally all the other indices, if we break the recent low, now that will basically, um, puncture all the people that bought recently, the lows, hoping that we were going to move right back to old highs and they'll have to sell. And we, we have to just always remember we have this huge amount of inflows that could turn into future sellers and that is a concern now I the other hand if I see a stock that has a lot of shorts in it, I look at those people as future buyers so that that's the the risk it can get it could get ugly uh, real quick
0: yeah you can explain what that means when you say that shorts can become buyers just when they when they cover? Yeah. And you
1: know, the, the funny thing about some shorts that in the last year that are so obvious and Tesla is one of them because their fundamentals are, they don't make sense. Their valuation is crazy. Uh, it's a cult stock and people you either love it or you hate it. And um, they've done exceptionally what well, the stock's done exceptionally well, but there aren't shorts in the stock anymore. Shorts have moved on and it, became a market of call buyers or put buyers and every time it goes down you see the puts come scrambling in there and then every time it goes up all the way up you see the call buyers and then they run out of steam so it's really been a market of heavy option buying and not selling option buying and that's just go into the highly speculative nature of the last year of how people have invested and getting rich. One of the things that I tell people all the time that are not professional investors or traders is to watch market sentiment on their own. And they can do it by, let's say, if the stock market gets clobbered and killed and it's Lester Holt is on TV talking about it on the NBC nightly news. That's probably the bottom. And when the GameStop thing was going on, it was the first thing on the local news here in New York and Connecticut, and Lester Holt had it on there, and that was the absolute top right there. And even my daughter, who I I have three daughters, and my youngest daughter is in college, She's a film major and she called me and she goes, dad, what's going on with this GameStop? She's never, ever asked me about an investment or anything. She goes, all these guys are playing it on their, they're doing it on their phone. And I'm like, oh God, you know, but that was the top. You can just see it. Basically what people do on mainstream financial media or any media is they're reporting on what's already happened rather than what is going to happen and, it's easy for them because people they absorb that. Oh yeah, look at GameStop. Look at I, and that just lured people in. And when the markets are getting killed and the, they're talking about it on the news, people are selling. They're panicking. They it it creates a sense of panic. I'm going to buy panic and I'm going to sell euphoria. That's how I'm wired. I've just done that my whole life.
0: And would you say there's not enough panic now?
1: No. I don't think so. I don't think there's enough panic. And, and you know, one thing also that happens in real bad bear markets is there's very little, very few places to hide. And that's because a fund manager that's let's say diversified properly, or a lot of, you know, let's just say a mutual fund or hedge fund or large money management firm, they may have pockets of stocks, bonds, Crypto, metals, everything. They're going to throw everything overboard and reduce risk across the board. They're not going to say, Oh, I'm going to hold on to Amazon. I'm going to hold on to Apple. No, they, they basically will, will reduce risk across the board. And it's, it's hard to find safe places. So in, you're going to outperform in cash in down markets. Pro tip. Yeah,
0: <laughs> you, so there's cash, and then there's bond, which is bonds, which is taking on uh, credit risk. But in the, in the case of treasury bonds, just interest rate risk, and you can go out to as long as thirty years. And a lot of investors and also hedge fund managers have, for the past thirty years, let's say bought stocks and hedged it by going very long bonds and doing so with leverage. Um, the sort of civilian version of this portfolio is called 60-40, 6% stocks, 40% bonds. And most of the time, there is a let's see, negative correlation between the price of bonds and the price of stocks, a positive correlation between the price of stocks and the bond yields. Uh, however, Tommy, as I'm sure you've noticed, year to date in 2022, that has not been the case long-term bonds have sold off a long-time short-term, short-term bonds, as well as with stocks. Uh, so I, you know, I like to joke, like if you had started the year and sent a note out to your client saying, I'm shorting stocks and I'm hedging my short stocks by, by shorting bonds, that would have worked extremely well. Uh, and I'm also reading your work, um, Hedge Fund Telemetry, I'm noticing that the, the sentiment for bonds is low, the sentiment for stocks is low. What do you make of this sort of everyone selling stocks and bonds at the same time?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a tough mix. Uh, The the market sentiment for bonds is a bit lower than stocks. And we're actually seeing some exhaustion signals on yields um, and ETFs on the downside, like TLT or IEF. Uh, So there's actually a tactical trade uh, to buy bonds right now. And the thought is, and I still think rates are going to go higher. So it's not a you know, put away for a long time. But I think there's a tactical risk off situation that's going to happen uh, with equities going down and people will buy into US treasuries. Uh, the one thing about treasuries and bonds, and this is the funny part. I think it's funny. Nobody is buying a 30 year bond or a 10 year bond for their yield. It's They're only buying for capital appreciation. That is how a bond manager makes money. Buying a 2% 10-year may seem like a good value as compared to something in Europe or Asia, which it is, but you're basically buying bonds for the capital appreciation and people have been buying stocks in the last, let's say 10 years, partly because they have a higher yield than bonds. So you could buy a S and P and get a higher yield than any treasury out there. And you get the benefit of having some capital appreciation and that's where people are positioned. So when bonds, when rates go up, uh, bond prices go down and there's a lot of leverage and there's a lot of risk that all the people, all the, issuance of credit, uh, investment grade, high yield, it's pegged off of U.S. treasuries. And th- so, for example, everything issued in the last two years was issued with a 10-year, you know, well under, you know, let's say one and a quarter percent. And if that, if rates start moving higher, the, uh, principal is going to drop on those high yield and investment grade bonds. And if you're holding a mutual fund or ETF, it's going to go down because of the principal. There's a real risk for a dislocation. And if you look back at financial turmoil, you can see that rates went up and stocks went down. So you can see bonds and stocks selling off. It happened in 1987. It happened with the Euro uh, debt crisis. It happened. Uh, That is a real risk. And, you know, one thing that nobody has seen, nobody has seen inflation like we have today and a Fed that has to do something about it. I mean, people are freaking out about 50 basis points coming off of zero. Zero. And... That may not, or maybe it will do what it, it's tricked to control inflation. And, you know, that I think is the real unknown. But if you go back into history and you look at the seventies and what Volcker did, I mean, it was, it was tough and he sent the economy into a recession and this fed could do it as well. But it was actually a recession that was cleansing it. Took away the the crazy runaway inflation and really set up a long term bull market. The problem is in bonds and, and stocks for that matter. But the problem is that you had such a high yield at that time that it lasted a lot longer. So what are Treasuries going to get to? Three percent, four percent?
0: You're talking t- mean, the I, ten year. I don't
1: ten year or the thirty year. I mean everything is very tightly wound and there's inversion that could happen as well. And that is also a concern when short rates go higher than the long rates and that inverted or, you know, a curve like that that's flattening could invert. And that's been a signal of a recession, but bring it on because if we do get that, we're going to have a better setup going forward. And if we're prepared for it, which we are, We'll, we'll prosper and we'll do fine with that and do your job, which is just that to control inflation. So, yeah, I think there's a possibility that we could go into a recession. And, you know, one thing that was happening in the, in the late, um, 1990s and early 2000 is that we had such strong growth and the NASDAQ dropped 90% and over, uh, I think it was about a year and a half and we never really went technically into a recession, but it was felt that we dropped significantly and then the Fed came to the rescue and created a new bubble. Uh, Let's make housing our new bubble.
0: What would here, Tom, what would you say the bubble is now? In 2000 it was tech stocks, 2008 it was housing, mortgage-backed securities, securitized stuff. Uh, what's the bubble now?
1: Uh, I I still think the equity market is a bubble. I think uh, the mega cap talk to- or ne- mega I can talk. Uh, the mega cap stocks are a bubble. I think people are hi- they hide in these, um, believing that they're going to just continue to uh, do as well as they always have, and growth is always looked upon as year over year. So if growth starts to slow, which I think. It will because the Fed's going to raise rates and it's going to put the consumer under some pressure, and the consumer's under pressure because of inflation. It's, a, it's, it's inevitable that these will go down. You know, I think that um, if you asked me that question six months ago, I'd have a lot more answers, but the market has more, you know, brought down a lot of speculative stuff. And that's good. You know, the market is supposed to do that. I think banks are a little uh, bubbly just because of the positioning. I think crypto is still a little bit bubbly. I'd like to see. I mean, I'm not a crypto investor. And the thing, the thing is, I'm absolutely 100% objective with it, technically, of how I look at the assets, and I only focus on Bitcoin and Ethereum, and those are the only ones I chart um, But I do think that if the equity markets go down, the bond markets go down, you're going to see crypto go down as well. Ethereum again, I I think is, I think has some upside potential. Maybe Bitcoin as well. But I think at 50,000 Bitcoin will probably stall if it gets there. Um, but it's that type of asset that can go down 50% and that's a feature, I'm told.
0: Mm. Yeah, you see some potential upside signals. You write that there are dueling upside and downside waves, and that the talking about Ethereum. Sorry, the upside sequential countdown gives me more confidence we could see higher levels in the near term. So I'm looking at a chart now. You have the Demark indicators, you have the moving averages. What is it about Ethereum's chart pattern that you think there's there's some upside? And also, what what's the time frame we're talking about?
1: Uh week to two week. About uh, let's say two weeks. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, the, the risk is like with everything right now is that we break through the previous lows. And the one thing that Ethereum has done nicely is that it bounced and we, our signals were really pretty st- strong, um, with the bounce and it, it made a higher low. And I like to see things make higher lows or lower lows if I'm short and that, is the one thing I think has been real positive. So this li- last little dip that we had in Ethereum, um, after the bounce, if I was trading it, I would be, st- I would have a tight stop there if I was a trader and then a much, you know, maybe halfway between last price today and the lows as a stop. Mm. And that's, that's generally how I'd, I would do it. And, you know, again, I'm totally agnostic and, You know, the DeMarc indicators have been exceptionally good finding inflection points. And, you know, the, the DeMarc indicators work almost like market sentiment where you, you know, the, the last, when things go up, it's not that smart sellers come into the market. It's that the last buyer has bought and it's the opposite on the downside when, you know, it's not the smart buyers come in. It's the last seller has sold. And on Bitcoin, I think it was November. 8th. The, the day before the high, we had a Demark sell countdown 13. I, I put it out on Twitter and I had some rather interesting comments of how stupid I am. how do it work out.
0: <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, Tom, other than cannabis, what are you long in this market? What do you like? What do you think is immune from the risk that you see and that actually could go a lot higher? Well, it's it's there's
1: going to be a few Hiding places um, in the market. I think there's still upside for the uh, reopening type plays, the casinos, the the restaurants. Well, restaurants are going to get hit by um, inflation. Um, airlines. I mean, people are flying again. I think uh, you're probably going to see the price gouging that they did early uh, start to subside and people are going to start saying okay let's travel let's do some more traveling and and i'd like to see people start traveling uh, for work again so one of my favorite stocks is the formula one f w o n k so i'm a big formula one fan and i've been a long holder of this stock and it's up 50 percent from where i bought it and i bought it at the lows in march 2020 you know they were canceling races and everything was falling apart. But the interest in Formula One, solely due to a Netflix show that's been on for three seasons called Drive to Survive, has brought in huge numbers of new fans, huge. And I even have my three daughters and and their boyfriends love it. And I can't get my wife to watch it, but that's, that's a tough ask. Um, but there's going to be two big races in the U S next year in, in May, uh, Miami, and then in October in Austin, and they've been doing Austin and the, the attendance is just out of control. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of people are going to these races and the, the profit that they're going to make. Is going to be very very high and the tv rights are they make money uh the teams are really interesting because it's brought social media has brought in the personalities of these drivers and so people feel a lot closer and i think it's gonna this stock it's 63 i think it's gonna be a hundred dollar stock uh this time next year you know i like special situations that's how i like lo- in unless in, in the market is oversold and I can basically spread it out and, you know, throw darts.
0: Mm, And what about your highest conviction short? Well, it can be a theme or an individual stock.
1: Uh, well, everybody's going to just laugh. I still like Tesla short and I've been, I, I actually, I trade it a lot and I've been pretty successful trading it. If you just had held it from that gamma squeeze all the way up, you'd be run over. I wasn't in it. I never, never could have imagined it, it got to the highs that it did. But I do think that there's a risk with Tesla and it's partly because I think Elon Musk selling stock, um, it's a little shady, um, you know, it was said that he donated $5 billion, $5 billion worth of shares to a secret charity and I, I'm willing to bet that he donated it to the Musk Foundation charity, because he's done that before. And I think that's a little bit cheesy because he's basically gonna not have to pay taxes now, which was the reason he sold. But there's also problems with the cars. Um, they, they 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 are having a problem servicing the cars. Um, there's more recalls starting to happen. You can go on social media and see people that are complaining about their cars, that the service is awful. So that's a brand that is under, it's it's got some problems. You have tons of people that love their cars. But you also have all these new EVs coming out with, you know, at cheaper prices as well. And in Europe, they, you know, Mercedes, BMW, Renault, Um, Peugeot, Stellantis, everybody has electric vehicles that are hitting the markets right now. VW is just, they're making a monster push. And I think it's going to be like the BlackBerry. It's going to be niche people love it. But here's the newest and greatest new thing called the iPhone, right? That's going to be, there's going to be alternatives. But Tom, you're short Apple too. Well, I don't think Apple's, I mean, I don't think Apple's going to have an electric vehicle out by 2025. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be, it'd be a bad idea for them to try and rush anything. And Apple's a smart company. Tim Cook's amazing. They don't rush anything. They yeah. are very methodical. They're going to do it. They're going to test it and they don't need to rush anything. They've got the greatest selling device, the iPhone that continues to make them money. They have services that make some money, but yeah, the, there's gonna be competition. And Ford, GM, they're all, they've got their trucks and people are gonna, they're gonna start buying them. And I think Tesla just is gonna to start to wane a bit. I think their demand um, by opening new factories could start to show an over um, too much capacity. So we'll see. I don't know. I, and then there's the full self-driving which doesn't work and people are starting to get irritated that they've paid money and it doesn't work. So that's an issue.
0: I'm glad glad you brought up Europe um because I neglected to ask you about uh, international markets. Do you have a view are you are you more constructive on Europe than you are on the US? How do you think about emerging markets, you know, Brazil? It, it Brazil's rates are already at 10-11%, so the US is at zero so maybe is Brazil a, a hiding place how are you sort of thinking about China Asia uh, Europe emerging markets I think um, I think
1: China they have still lots of issues with their real estate and banks and we'll see I think China's probably it may be an okay place to 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 buy uh, the a shares in China the Hong Kong stuff they're still I mean look they're When the government is publicly going after the tech CEOs and cutting off their knees, basically, and their stocks are getting killed, um, it's uninvestable. Alibaba has risk because SoftBank, which is under a lot of pressure themselves, leveraged out of their mind. um, That's their biggest holding at 24%, and they're probably going to have to sell some. That's a big risk, by the way. SoftBank.
0: SoftBank owns 24% of Alibaba.
1: Yeah. And they've, they've, they sold some higher and they got in, uh, pre, you know, pre IPO way, way back. And it's been their best position, but everything else that they have has been absolutely decimated and their stocks been hit and they're the third largest weight on the Nikkei. There's, and they have private equity. And in private equity, you have to mark your positions. And it, it's very hard when everybody in the company was given leverage to buy shares in their private equity. And then if they have to start marking things down, it, it could get a little unwindy. Unwindy. Yeah. Is that a word? Unwindy. So, yeah, the, people could unwind some there. That's a risk to keep an eye on. I'm good with risks. I'm also worried in Europe about the ECB. I just think that they are very much ill-equipped to deal with rising rates. And... Why is that? Go ahead.
0: Why Why is Europe or the ECB ill-equipped to handle rising rates?
1: Well, they they did the the most idiotic financial move ever, which was and it have you know it happened in in Japan as well, negative interest yielding ne- negative yielding uh, bonds. Now I asked the head of Blackstone's global asset allocation years ago, several years back. And I said, why are people, why are your fund managers just keep buying the negative interest rate debt? And he said, because they think that rates are going to keep going lower. Okay. So your principal goes up, but you're still paying the interest And I said, what happens if that reverses? He goes, well, then, you know, we've got a problem. And now things are reversing. The amount of negative yielding debt in the world uh, on dollar terms was 18 trillion. And now it is almost under 4 trillion. So the risk I see is that you have, and here's the other thing. All the banks in Europe, basically, they got bailed out and they were told just keep buying and the pensions. Just keep buying our debt in the, e- for the ECB. Just keep buying it. So they have all this garbage on their balance sheet. And let's just think of it this way. So you, you're paying the interest and the principal is declining at the same time. That's a, I mean, that is a certifiable disaster if rates continue higher. I, yeah. W- I mean, so that to me is just like logic. If I if I explained that to my wife, who is an interior designer, and I said, Can you imagine doing this? She would even know that it would be like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. So that's a risk of of things unwinding. And Europe has had a history of debt unwind un, unwinding. Unwindy, I have to use that word more. It, and that was in 2011 when yeah. rates spiked, stocks got killed.
0: And it was saved by the ECB's quantitative easing, QE. And now they're going to undo QE. they yeah. start tightening.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to. You know, Christine Lagarde is cagey as far as saying if they will and how they will and what will happen, which is more concerning to me because... Everyone needs to be globally on the same page as far as unwinding it to have that ability in the future to you know, have emergency measures. Because if let's say they don't and things get ugly, what are they going to do? They're going to, oh, we're just going to give you more of the same that got us into the problem in the first place. That uh, sounds
0: good. Yeah. Sounds so that? how does that impact you the know? equity market? I, I take it that's a risk for for European equities.
1: Yeah. Abs. And look, European, European. I mean, foreign equities are, you know, a lot of people like Europe. Uh, I mean, everybody's liked Japan for a long time because of their, it's cheap. You know, I think that, that, you know, saying something's cheap or expensive is, it's not necessarily the, the greatest reason to go in there. But I think that there's structural issues with the ECB. Uh, first of all, it's not like the United States or one country. It's a bunch of countries that don't all carry their own weight. Uh, and that's an issue. We saw that in 2011 and therefore you could have, I mean, let's go real ugly. The ECB type to, you know, see things break up if things started to really unwind. I just think that right now that they don't have a cohesive plan, they haven't really put that out there. She backpedaled on on reducing the balance sheet or, or QE. Mm-hmm. And I think that that to me said, we're making it up as we go. And I'm scared to raise rates. There
0: so is there a country that you are... Le- more bullish on, or perhaps less bearish on, than the United States. How would you sort of rank them on a relative basis? Earlier, I thought I b- thought you mentioned that the U.S. in particular, you were more bearish on it than other countries, but maybe I, I misunderstood. No, I'm
1: I'm I'm not. Um, I'm I'm actually. I generally am very bullish on the U.S. versus other countries, uh, partly because I think that our equity market has been a beacon of. Uh, strength uh, of inflows and predictability with our Fed, we have higher rates. And I think that you you have better potential with, with what's going on in the US. Not all places in the US, but I think that uh, there's risk. If everything goes down, I think there's gonna be more downside in foreign markets than in the US. And I look at markets globally and I was talking to Julian Brigden and he's like, what do you think of Chile? I'm like, well, the chart looks good. What do you think of Brazil? Yeah, the chart looks good. But again, those have some sketchy governments. They have some stuff that could blow up pretty quick. If the US starts to blow up, everything's going to go down. So. I just think right now it's just, it's play it safe. It's, it's a time to be tactical. Don't try to get rich, stay solvent, solvent. live to play another day. That's, those are little things that I write down on my, my pad down here just to remind myself. Nice.
0: Well, that's wise words uh, to leave our audience. Tom, thanks so much for coming on Forward Guidance. Uh, I want to ask you just a little bit, you, I under, It's my understanding that five years ago and one day ago, uh, you started Hedge Fund Telemetry. So what was it that uh, uh, inspired you to start Hedge Fund Telemetry? Tell us that story. And then also, uh, what was it about on Valentine's Day that that was the first day you, you started?
1: I don't know why it was Valentine's Day. Um, but I, I, I worked for a um, Hedge Fund for a bunch of years. Then I ran a family office for the founder. And uh, every week and day I'd put out research that I would get from all different sources. And it would go out internally into our firm. And it helped people, analysts, traders, um, portfolio managers position properly and see risks. And I would just take so much and condense it in. And I thought to myself, and when I was at the family office, I thought, you know, this would be kind of a cool idea to send to some institutional clients, hedge funds, pensions, and those types and see what what would happen truth be told i was trying to search for what i wanted to do and i was putting out this note i continued to do it and i I wasn't making really any money and one of my old trader friends said you know you should put it on twitter and see if anybody wants it people will buy this it's really good and they'll pay you i was like (laughs) and so I put it out on Twitter and I said, Hey, does anybody want my daily note? I, you know, give me your email, send me a DM. And I had a thousand DMS within three hours and I had 2000 within a week of people that wanted to see my stuff. And I started doing it. Um, it was free and then we went behind a paywall. Hey, look, I got to pay for Bloomberg's and I got to pay for people and you know, Hey, I think it's worth it. But the point is, uh um, I love what I do. It's research. It has a little bit of my personality and spice. And it's long short ideas. It's macro. We look at currencies, commodities, rates, everything. And it's been a joy since five years ago. And I did it and and honestly, it was like a really low point in my life. And I thought, I've nothing to to lose. And I basically burned the boats and never looked back. And I've met so many nice people like you, like so many ha- who I've collaborated with. It's it's just been an absolute joy.
0: Well, thanks for sharing that uh, story, Tom. Great to have you on Forward Guidance. Thank you everyone for watching. And if you wanna uh, learn more about uh, Tom's work, definitely check him out Hedge Fund Telemetry. And also uh, he, he can be found on Twitter at Tommy Thornton. Thank you. Thanks, Jack.